Good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to our New Testament reading, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. As we continue going through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote from the city of Ephesus, where he was in jail, to the church that was in the city of Philippi, I just want you to remember Paul's awaiting trial. And um, there's a strong likelihood, a good chance, that the outcome of the trial is going to be his execution. He's being held on capital charges. And his good friends who live in the city of Philippi, they love Paul. They love him so much. This is one of the most affectionate, joy-filled letters in the New Testament. I hope you've been reading it over and over like a lot of us in the church have been doing. You get a sense of that. And, And they're scared, obviously, right? They're scared for Paul. Scared that he's gonna die. He's gonna be killed. I mean, remember the Christians in Philippi, this is the first church in the con- on the continent of Europe. When, when Paul, if you've read the book of Acts, when he, when he got to Philippi and he shared the gospel, Lydia was the first convert, this uh, businesswoman who sold purple cloth. And, and at this point, there's probably only about 30 of them. So, so just think about that. They, this is kind of like um, the quarterback going down, right? Um, they're, they're scared for him and they're scared for themselves and they're struggling because the same forces that conspired against Paul and have put Paul in jail and now he's facing this, this dire situation, those same forces are moving against them. And, and so they know that they're very well, they could be next in line on the chopping block. And so they're anxious, they're worried. You read later in the letter where Paul is trying to help them not to be anxious, right? Because they are struggling with that. And remember, this is in the very early days of Christianity. So Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead something about 20 years before this. So this is not long into the whole game. And and here's Paul. He's writing this letter. And and the reason he's writing this letter is to encourage them. They're scared. They're worried. He wants to encourage them to hold firm, to hold the line, to be a missionary church, not to hide the light under a bushel, right? All those kinds of things. He wants to encourage them in this. They are to be a church of missionaries. No matter what their paying gig is, he wants them to see themselves as missionaries. And to do this... In the whole letter of Philippi, he's making one point, one main point. And this comes up in chapter 1, verse 27, where he writes, The one thing I would stress is this. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. That's, that's my favorite translation of verse 27. Your public behavior. And it's a word there. We've talked about this in weeks past. It's, it's the root of the word is the root of our word politics, um, city, civilization, citizen. It's, it's the root behind all of those words. The way you behave as citizens in Philippi must match up to the fact that you have a dual citizenship. You're both in Philippi and you're in Christ. You have to act like citizens of the king. You have to live by the rules of the kingdom of God. You have to live like a citizen of God's kingdom. And and this needs to be visible in your public behavior. Missions, 
being a missionary. I'm using this word a lot for a number of reasons, but one reason is this word, missionary or missions, it's gotten a bad rap today, and and for some good reasons. But some of the pushback isn't really fair. When we let the Bible define what it means to be a missionary, what it means for our church, Incarnation, to be a missionary church in Harrisonburg, when we let the Bible define it, it's different than if you define it as an act of colonialism. If the only way you think about missions is in this critical way, a critical way that sees missions as kind of just an act of power on behalf of an empire to colonize the world, to pillage and and rape its way through the world. That's a caricature. There's some truth in it. But we need to recover this word. A missionary church, according to the Bible, according to Philippians, is not a church that's trying to take over. We are not trying to take over Harrisonburg. We are not trying to displace the culture of Harrisonburg or the valley or the university or the downtown. You see, when you approach missions as an act of trying to displace the culture and take over, you're acting as if there's these huge binaries. It's either all bad and we're all good or whatever, but that's not the way it is with culture. We're not trying to restore Harrisonburg to some lopsided nostalgic view of something called the good old days. Time and culture have moved on to the benefit of a whole lot of people. As a missionary church, What we're learning from Philippians is that we want to embrace all of the rich goodness that is in our city, that is in our culture. And there is so much good. Don't misunderstand me. We do want to reject the idolatry. In other words, to be a missionary church is to faithfully translate the gospel, embracing what's good and rejecting what's twisted. And to do this, we don't want to coerce anybody, right? We want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to be loving missionaries, to be kind and gentle and respectful, and like Jesus, to be vulnerable. And when someone or something opposes us, like we saw last week in the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, when someone opposes us as missionaries, we are willing to suffer and to forgive and not to retaliate. We are not trying to use political power to force our neighbors into our worldview. We don't want to belittle the beliefs of others, and we don't want to stand outside of their beliefs with arrogant self-righteousness. To be a missionary church, Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, the most important thing is not takeover. It's that our public behavior matches up to the gospel of the king. Now, over the last two weeks, we've seen this means two things in particular. Paul says to the Philippians, it means unity, 
We've seen that for several weeks, and this week we'll see it means holiness. Our public behavior that must match up to the gospel of the king, a primary part of it is that we have to resist all of the pressures that convince us it's okay to not like other Christians. It's okay to be splintered apart in our denominations in a way that doesn't embody unity. We have to resist that. But this week he says we also have to resist the impulse to not be holy. A missionary church, a church that really takes its its city seriously and tries to have a real engagement of the gospel of the king with that city is a church that takes unity and holiness both very seriously. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see how this morning's passage pushes this issue of holiness. And in it, we see to the shock and awe of Keith, he told me earlier, there are actually seven points to holiness. He was like, you got to be kidding me. But we will get done before lunch, I promise. The first one will take so long, you'll think we won't make it to lunch. But seven things, seven things that holiness requires of a missionary church. Number one. Holiness requires thought. This is verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The first thing that holiness requires of a real missionary church is thought. That's what that phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling means. It means work it out. Okay, you've you've come into the kingdom. Now work out what that means. It doesn't mean like you make your salvation, right? If it meant that, that would go against the whole of the Bible. That's not what it means. It means work out what our salvation means for us today in Harrisonburg. We have to figure out all the implications of this amazing gospel, this amazing good news that the power of God has come into the world through the life of ministry and mighty works of Jesus. God's kingdom has arrived on earth. The kingdom of God has broken the power of death and darkness and disease and sin and corruption in Jesus' crucifixion. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated through Jesus' resurrection. Now, what does it mean that we've been delivered into this kingdom in Harrisonburg? Right? He wrote, to to the saints, the holy ones, in Christ, in Philippi. What does it mean that we have been saved into God's kingdom in this particular city? What are the implications of that? We have to think it through In every area of our life. Not just where we put our hope for our eternal destiny. But also, what does the kingdom of God mean for your work? This is really hard to think this through. Now, all of the pronouns here are plural. So when he says, work out your own salvation, he doesn't mean, Mike, train them, work out your private salvation. It's plural, you, Incarnation, 
work out what being saved into the kingdom of God means for us today, this year, in this particular city, in the particular jobs that we go to. If you're in business, work it out. What does it mean that there is not a square inch of this universe over which Christ did not die for and which he doesn't claim as his own? What does that mean for business? What in the business realm in Harrisonburg is moving toward God's kingdom, operating in, in like consistently with God's kingdom? And what is moving away from it? If you're a professional mental health worker, what is it in, in mental health today that is aligned with the kingdom of God? And where are the twisted up parts of it? If you're in education, what, what about education? If you're in private, edu- private Christian school education, it's one thing. If you're in the public schools, it's a very different thing. What's broken and what's, what's really good? You have to think it through. And this is hard. Holiness requires thought. The salvation that comes to us means we are re- united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. That is the turning point in cosmic history. What does it mean for you in your hobbies, in your struggles, in your gifts, in your vocation? Holiness requires us to work out our salvation in the lives we have. Now, this is so difficult. And it's so difficult, you can't do it on your own. To be a Christian here in Harrisonburg is different than the salvation a secularist has. The Christian salvation is unique. It's different than the salvation a Muslim lives into, embodies, imagines. It's different than the salvation of my neighbor who's Baha'i or my Buddhist friend. We are Christians. We have a particular salvation. Now let's work it out. Let's work out what it means, how it shapes our lives. Now, this is so complicated. It's a communal task. That's why our church is turning up the temperature on learning opportunities. That's why we started Sunday school. There is a lot to learn. That's why Keith is starting Essentials 2.0. That's why in the next few weeks, you're going to hear that we're going to start hosting lunches throughout the year for vocations. So we're going to invite everybody involved in medical professional medical um, vocations to a lunch so that we can say, get to know each other, pray together. What's broken in our hospital system? What's good in our hospital system? How can you work out your salvation and your vocation? We're going to have a lunch for teachers. We're going to have a lunch for businessmen. We're going to, every few months, we're going to have these lunches so that we as a church can get really serious working with one another to work out our salvation in this particular place, in this particular year, so that we can do this faithfully. Holiness requires thought. That's the longest point. Don't worry, we'll get there. Number two, holiness requires obedience. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my, as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Therefore, that's the first word. That means it has to do with what went before. And we looked at last week, the Christ hymn. And remember what it says in verse 4 of the Christ hymn? Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. 
That's unconditional obedience. That's obedience without limits. Obedience has gotten a bad rap these days, hasn't it? I mean, and for some good measure. Especially when somebody like me, right, wearing a collar, stands up, looks down, and lectures to people about obedience. We, we've learned the, how ripe this dynamic is for spiritual abuse, right? That's good. We need to keep learning that. But we can't learn it so that it means obedience is no longer required of us to God. Because Jesus is the way. He was obedient even to death. And so you need to find the places in your life where you've drawn the line and said, I'm obedient to that point. And if it's anywhere short of to death, then there's work to be done. Holiness requires obedience. Some of us struggle with obedience, not just because of the whole spiritual abuse thing, but because nobody else seems to be doing it, right? There are these parts of our lives where when we read scripture and we're in the church, we hear that we should do or shouldn't do. But when we look around, we live in these places where that makes us a freak if we actually act like that, right? It makes us so different than everybody else. Everybody else is doing X or nobody else does Y. But obedience is not to the point of fitting in. It's even to the point of death. So when Jesus tells us something holiness is not a vote sometimes oftentimes holiness is about obeying another another reason I think we struggle with obedience is because our culture has a religion and the religion of our culture is epicureanism that says you're a slave to your appetite that says you have to have sex to be a human. It is an animal urge. It is a biological drive that cannot be resisted. And we live in a culture that is not just addicted to excess, but is beat down by the idea you can't resist excess. But, but Christianity shows us you can master yourself. You can master your appetites. That's the whole point of Christianity so often is that there's this strong desire, this strong appetite, and Christianity teaches us that when you are saved, you are united with Christ. And in our union with Christ, we can draw down on the power of the Holy Spirit and overcome the flesh. So anytime you're wrapped up in something and you have a defeated kind of attitude and you think, I really can't stop, you can I'm not saying it's easy or simple or quick, but you, obedience is possible. And holiness requires obedience. Look what it says in verse 12. It is God who works in you to will and to work for the good. The reason you can is because you've been united to Christ and Christ is working in you. You can believe that. We're going to focus on Lent, on this whole issue of learning to deal with our appetites and how can we be a community that are not, that's composed of people who are not slaves to their appetites. Number three, holiness requires fear. This is another thing that our culture makes it hard for us, right? Look what it says in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear 
and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The point here is that the struggle for holiness is done by a church in whom God is in their midst. So when you are facing situations in life that holiness is one way, unholiness another way, it is God who stands at that crossroads. Fear and trembling, comma, for it is God who works in you, in us, plural. The fear of the Lord, this is the appropriate reverence for the God who is the creator of all things. Sometimes holiness is very difficult. And in those difficult times, it is God who knows me, who knows how many hairs, as Keith would say, are on my head. I make it easier for him than Jack. (laughs) He does love me, but he is not my cuddly teddy bear. He is the creator of all things. He is so grand, so powerful that in him we live and move and have our very being. The whole universe itself is sustained by him. The fear and the trembling. This is what Jesus taught us to pray when he taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Today in my life, may you be hallowed. May you be reverenced appropriately. And you're not ever going to get to holiness if you don't recover that fear of God. Number four, holiness requires courage. Look at verse 15 and 16. So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's hard to be different, to be out of step with the room around you. Holiness requires us to be bold and uncompromising in our loyalty to Jesus. It takes courage to be uncompromising, to refuse to water down. But there is so much at stake. Jesus Christ is creator of all things and the one who brings salvation and restoration. He is the Lord. All things rightfully belong to him. There can be no shalom, no justice, unless his lordship is acknowledged. He is the final judge, and a weak and timid witness will not shine out like stars in the darkness. The good news is comprehensive, and it demands ultimate and comprehensive loyalty To King Jesus, a witness that is less than that is not a missionary. And some of the things that we're struggling with in our day is stuff that at the end of the day isn't complicated. It's just hard. It just takes courage. It just means stepping on a path that makes you different. Now, some things we deal with are complicated, but some of the stuff that we're making complicated is really a guise for our struggle to be courageous. 
Look, I struggle with fear. Fear is a fundamental part of my life. I've told this story before. When I was little, it was, it was nightmares. They, they killed me for years and years into my early adolescence. And I mean, even still, I'm a scaredy cat. Like, I've told you all this. My wife and I tried to watch Stranger Things, and I couldn't make it like 15 minutes in. I got so scared. I was just like, I'm not doing that. Y'all are, and those of you who don't find it scary, that's how fearful a person I am. It's been this thing I've had to deal with my whole life. And, and, the, and the most effective way for me to deal with fear is that I memorize 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And so when I face these moments, whether it's waking up, which I still do about once a month in the middle of the night, terrified, I quote this verse. Or when I'm at a restaurant and somebody asks me a question, hey, Aubrey, you're a Christian, right? What do you think about, and I just feel it coming like, whoa, I know it's going to be one of two things, sex or politics, right? And they're asking, not in a quiet voice, so nobody else hears. And I feel that fear just like a locomotive coming toward me. I go back to 12-year-old Aubrey, 16-year-old Aubrey in high school, and I quote, For God has not given me to myself, in my heart, in my soul, in my mind. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but power and And I just have to move forward with that. God's word is powerful. It helps us in these moments. Number five, holiness requires scripture. To be a missionary in church here in Harrisonburg, we must be holy. This requires thought. It's very complex. Obedience, fear, and courage, and scripture. Look what Paul writes in verse 16. Holding fast to the word of God of life, clinging to scripture, grabbing a hold of scripture and saying things like, like the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, like you're, how can a young man keep his way pure by hiding your word in my heart, holding on to scripture and saying scripture is right. No matter what I think, holding on to scripture and clinging to it, knowing that it is the path of life. Even if I don't get its logic, Even if I don't fully understand it, scripture is the word of life. And so it's life. So hold it, learn it, memorize it, grab a hold of it. Becoming a Christian means being converted into faith in scripture. Conversion is a total conversion. It is a conversion of the mind as much as of the will. And and when we are converted, one of the things God does is he comes to us and and he gives himself to us through scripture. And we learn that whenever I'm reading scripture, I am encountering the words of Jesus, the one who saved me. This is his word, all of it. From the table of contents to the maps. Number six, holiness requires a belief and a remembrance of the return of Christ. Look at verse 16. Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. All through Philippians. Paul keeps coming back to the day of Christ. It's in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 10. Here in chapter 2, verse 16. It's in chapter 3, verse 11. 
chapter 3, verse 20. He just always comes back to it. We have got to remember that Jesus is returning. Look, here's a corny little story to explain what I mean. When I was in high school, um, it was illegal to drink if you were under 21. I think that's still the case, people. And um, it was... And I knew that, and I knew that it didn't please God if I drank and got drunk. And um, I cannot tell you how many times I did not go to a party. I did not drink or get drunk because I was afraid Jesus was going to come back when I was getting my drink on. I'm for real. And I, some, some other of you goofy people who were raised like me, you did some of the same things. You were just so terrified. I think that's appropriate. I think it would help a lot of us a lot of the time if we said, this thing I'm about to do, this choice I'm about to make, this behavior I'm about to engage in, if Jesus returns, will I be proud of what I'm doing right now? Holiness requires that we know King Jesus knows every hair. He loves us. He brings us to himself. But we are dealing with the king. And we should deal with him with both love and reverence. And he is returning. And when he does return, there will be an account. Lastly, seventh, holiness requires joy. Look what he says in verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Um, the sacrificial offering of their faith was the money they sent. We've talked about this. They piled up their money and they sent it to Paul to help him because he's in jail. And when you were in jail in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire did not provide you food or water or clothing or any necessities. Like, you know, Pavlo's hierarchy of needs, not on there, right? And so you had to have friends. And so they sacrificed a lot. To sit. And he takes this money and he says, look, that money you sent, I bought some food with it. I bought some water. I got some water with it. I got some clothes and some medicine with it. And I might still be executed. And if I am, it will be on that beautiful offering that you sent me. You will have just fed and clothed me to get me to my execution spot. And then look what he says. I'm glad. And I rejoice with you all. He talked about this earlier. Remember, he said, I'm going to honor Jesus in my body, whether it's to live or to die. And then he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, look what he says back in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent. I think it's important for us today that we recognize that cynicism is intellectually shallow and cowardly. And joy is a choice. He says over and over, rejoice. That's turning the word joy into a command. Choose joy. And he's telling them that in the situation they're in. Rejoice. You're scared to death. Rejoice. 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 Holiness requires the choice of joy. Not saying it's easy. Not saying that this is um, fun. 
Not saying that you can do it on your own. None of the you here is singular. It's all collective. It's us as a church. How are we going to learn to rejoice in the upcoming election? No matter where it lands. Are we going to, as a group, learn to rejoice? How are we going to learn to rejoice in all of the stresses of this world that we live in? Rejoice. Holiness requires the choice of joy. Now look, as we continue our journey through Philippians, I want to remind you once again of this corny little thing. Let's go to prom at Philippi. Pray script, pray Philippians. Read it over and over. It takes the average reader 12 minutes to read through the whole book. Try to do that every day. Figure out the passage that we're going to preach on next week and try to outline it. Work your mind around it and memorize. P-R-O-M. Pray, read, outline, memorize. I wonder if some of us should memorize this passage because there's work to be done in our lives in holiness. Let's pray.